Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is probably the best-known contemporary Ukrainian novelist and journalist. He's the current president of Penn Ukraine and the author of critically acclaimed and popular novels, including the best-selling Death and the Penguin and Grey Bees. His latest work is Diary of an Invasion, a collection of his searing dispatches from the heart of Kyiv, a remarkable record of a brilliant writer at the forefront of a 21st century war. Andre, you've been documenting the invasion since before it started, but in lots of ways, this story for you goes back so much further, back, in fact, to 1941 and your grandfather, Alexei. Well, actually, he was killed in 1943, uh, free in Kharkiv and buried near this city, which is held now by uh, Russian artillery in a small village called Valky. But, uh, I mean, I have been writing in the last years a series of novels about 1919, and I see lots of similarities between the events then, from 1918 till 1921 in Kyiv, in Ukraine, with the events today. The same level of atrocity, the same level of hate for everything Ukrainian, which was actually shown in 1918-1919 by the Red Army, by the Bolsheviks, who were trying to make Ukraine Soviet Republic, and they succeeded from the fourth attempt in 1921. And now we have actually the repetition of the same situation. And in '41, that's when your family actually had to flee. Well, my family had to flee not from Ukraine. Actually, uh, they were fleeing from a village Budagash in Leningrad region in the northern Russia and my grandma was uh, crossing the huge river Volkhov in a wooden boat together with her three children, uh, two brothers of my mother and my mother. And of course, I mean, at that time they were like 10, uh, 11, 12 years old. Mm. So in a way, that war has always been very present in your mind. Well, the Second World War was always present, uh, not because actually history of my family, but because it was present in uh, Soviet culture. I mean, it was a cult war for uh, Soviet ideology. The 9th of May, the so-called Victory Day, uh, was much more important even than the October Revolution anniversary. And later, already in post-Soviet time, it became the day when uh, Ukrainians were menaced the most by Russia. So because, I mean, and I don't connect actually this day with actual events of the Second World War, because for me, actually, the, the history, the real events are much more important than how the memory was instrumentalized and used for ideological purposes. Mm. And I mean, talking about 1919, 1920, of course, what we saw then was all the writers, the intellectuals being wiped out. And that's a great fear that the second execution of, of the literati, if you like, will happen again. It will happen if Russians come, because obviously, I mean, Putin doesn't hide that this war is also against Ukrainian identity against uh, Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian language, and against Ukraine altogether, because he dreams of wiping the name of Ukraine from the world map. 
so, I mean, who is keeping the map of Ukraine on the world map? Of course, intellectuals, historians, professors, sometimes politicians, but writers most of all, because writers are creating the history of uh, culture, the history of identity, the history of people, and the history of the country. And actually, these books are much more important than the school books. And that's why actually now the censors, Russian censors sent to occupied territories are going on through the books in the local libraries, which were not shelled or destroyed or burned down. And they are removing books by contemporary Ukrainian authors. I don't know in which way they are destroyed, but uh, I mean, they are taken away. And of course, the books which were printed in the Soviet times, they remain because that's what Russia wants. Mm. Russia wants to bring Ukraine back down in the past. You've been writing about this conflict since before it began. You've been writing about it since the Donbass was invaded, in fact, with grey bees. And now, of course, you've been documenting everything that's happened with this current invasion. And yet you are still based within Ukraine. Are you not frightened? Uh, I would be probably dishonest to say that I'm, I'm frightened. I'm frightened for the actual destiny of Ukraine, for the future, for for the country. But, uh, well, I, I'm not more frightened than any, anybody else. I mean, I, I'm following what is happening. I, uh, I mean, in a way, one can say that actually Ukraine is fighting back because Ukraine is frightened of losing itself. I mean, Ukrainians, if they lose Ukraine, they stop being Ukrainians, they stop being free, they will lose uh, not only freedom to express their opinion, etc. They will lose their basis, their soil on which they stand. And uh, Ukrainian soil, actually, it's the history of independence, history of democracy, history of anarchy also. Mm-hmm. And that's why, I mean, Ukrainians, if, I, if they cannot go out and protest, like in Russia, they cannot go out and protest. I mean, they, they, they will be practically destroyed by this only fact. If they are forced to shut up, they cannot shut up. If they have to emigrate, I mean, probably choosing between remaining on their land in Ukraine, but being sort of muzzled, uh, being unable to talk, and uh, emigrating and being able to talk, probably they will have to choose emigration because freedom is uh, something which is much more important for Ukrainians than stability, than money. And for Russians, unfortunately, stability and money are much more important than freedom. Mm. So, I mean, they gave up everything in the last 20 years. They allowed uh, Putin to destroy a position physically and morally. They agreed that actually you can be imprisoned for sharing a post on Facebook. So, I mean, in this situation, I mean, I don't have much hope about future of Russia, but I still have a lot of hope for the future of Ukraine. This book, The Diary of an Invasion, collects all your writings, a lot of your radio interviews, and anything really that you've put out there about what's going on, including some quite early history. I've just been chatting to your wife, and in the book you describe how you're married in Brixton, and then you go back to what was then the USSR. I said to your wife, why on earth would you do that when even the person issuing the visa seemed to have some doubts that you were doing a sane thing? And she said, I'm a clever girl. If he hadn't wanted to go back there, I wouldn't have married him. <laughs> she didn't tell me this. <laughs> but I mean, I couldn't imagine living abroad, in fact. I mean, I travel a lot in the last 25, 30 years. 
But for me, every time I come back is uh, some kind of a reason of, for a joy. I uh, revisit my friends. I, I revisit my country, my city, my village where we have a house and a garden. And I mean, it's like it's very important to be able to come back. And I, I always wanted to travel. So, I mean, my, my dream became true. But I never wanted to be a foreigner, a stranger who is trying to adopt to new life, to new rules, etc. I'm, I'm learning when I'm traveling. I'm not assimilating or trying to sort of change my uh, life. You were born in Russia. You moved to Ukraine when you were very small, three yeah. years old, I think. And you write in Russian, you speak Russian. Has that been difficult for you in this, this new climate? Yes, yes. Not only for me, because, I mean, we have a lot of writers who write in Russian. And, uh, I mean... I would say, I mean, they, they, they never felt very comfortable, but they were never threatened or they, they were published always in Ukraine. And the best books of theirs were translated into Ukrainian. And most of the Russians writing, uh, Ukrainian writers, they speak Ukrainian, but mother tongue is Russian, of course. Mm. And now it, it became a bit more difficult and, and morally it, it became a bit more hard because, I mean, Russian is practically almost official, the language of the enemy, although it is a mother tongue of Vladimir Zelensky and uh, majority in the government, etc. But the intellectuals of Ukraine and uh, the Ukrainian language writers and different cultural figures, I mean, they, 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 they are very anti-Russian, which is quite clear. And uh, I would say, I mean, I am very anti-Russia and anti-Putin, but I... I keep my mother tongue. <laughs> I have a right for a mother tongue. Everyone has actually a right to have a mother tongue and to use it. And Well, I mean, uh, I, I write my posts mostly in Ukrainian now because actually every time I write a post in Russian, there is somebody in the comments who says, what are you doing? Why are you using this language? And uh, people forget, of course, in Ukraine that up to 40% of Ukrainians are Russian speakers and lots of soldiers who are fighting for Ukraine, they are Russian speakers. And actually this some kind of uh, virtual conflict, because usually it is all discussions on Facebook, it hurts them also. I mean, <laughs> and there are some reactions of these people, but it's also understandable that uh, uh, Russia provokes now so much hate with so many lives lost in Ukraine. And, uh, of course, we shouldn't forget that the first victims of this war among civilians were Russian speakers uh, of Mariupol, of Kharkiv, of Dirgachi, of Akhtyrka, of Bucha, etc. So, I mean, I don't want to count how many Russian speakers or Ukrainian speakers were killed because they are all Ukrainians. Mm. And of course there are some Russians still in Russia who violently oppose the war. I mean, this visa ban, as many people have argued, is also keeping out the people who just want to get away. Well, it's one of many issues <laughs> uh, caused by this war. And of course, I mean, it is a, a result of the hate and, and we know from where <laughs> the hate comes. But uh, I want to mention maybe another situation that 99% uh, of Ukrainian writers don't want to take part in uh, joint events with the Russians, even if these Russian writers are anti-Putin and live abroad, etc. So this is quite a universal reaction. And most of Ukrainians think that actually that uh, Russians 
can be let out of Russia abroad if they apply for uh, asylum, if they are escaping from the country, if they are not going to enjoy their life uh, in France while the embargoes uh, of different countries cause shortages of cheese and wine. Yeah. This book, Diary of an Invasion, is wonderful in so many ways. What I really love about it is its kind of episodic nature and that it's contemporaneous. So you're writing as it's happening and that there's no kind of looking ahead because you don't know what's going to happen. We're reading what you thought on that day. And there's this, this slow sense, because of course we do know what happens, that this is, is what's creeping up. Did you think yourself as you were writing it that you were heading into full-blown war uh no i mean i uh, i had a feeling that uh, the escalation is inevitable that there will be more blood shed in donbass but i could never imagine that kiev will be shelled lviv will be shelled even transcarpathian region on the border with hungary would be bombed this was uh, somehow too much for my imagination, although I always said that I have a wild imagination. There are some wonderfully personal stories about friends of yours, and I'd just like to pick up on a few of them. For instance, your aged friend who was a very great anaesthetist who had had both his legs amputated due to diabetes, who was in a hospital, they refused to get on a train, and eventually did. What happened to that couple? Well, I visited them in uh, June uh, they are now in Maine, Mainz, in Germany, not far away from Frankfurt. And actually, I hope that uh, we will visit them again in September when we are driving from France to Berlin. Uh, they are dreaming of coming back to Kiev. Uh, one story, what sort of peculiar story did happen because uh, one of neighbors is looking after their apartment and Tanya, Valentin's wife, asked this neighbor to collect some clothes from cupboards and to send them back to Germany in a case for the autumn. And of course, this uh, gentleman mixed up the clothes, so they they received a case, uh, but not with the clothes she wanted (laughs) him to send. But it doesn't matter. I mean, they they got what they wanted and they, they are still, I mean, they are dreaming of coming back to Kyiv maybe in spring. But she would like maybe to come earlier for a day or two if she can find somebody who will look after Valentin while she's away. Another aspect of the war which isn't talked about much is the fate of animals, not just domestic animals. And I know, of course, you talk about your own hamster, <laughs> but also animals in zoos. Well, uh, the zoo, some zoos are working, uh, but we know that actually some animals were killed in the zoos. And uh, most of the victims actually were in Kharkiv Zoo, where a chimpanzee was killed and some other animals. But uh, what is interesting, in the, if we talk about the latest development, that from last week you can insure your animals against wounds by bullets and uh, from shrapnel in Ukraine. There was a story that you report about animals escaping from the zoo and Ukraine, which has something like 7,000 hunters. All the hunters stopped shooting deer in case they were the escaped ones. Well, 700,000 hunters, I think, still there. Some of them are on the front. Yes, but they were asked, they were told that the deers were 
on the loose somewhere. And I don't know actually if they were recaptured or not, but uh, still these stories like this uh, happen again because, I mean, some stables were bombed and a lot of horses became wild and are running somewhere in Ukrainian forests. Mm -hmm. So we, we don't know, really. <laughs> you also talk about people buying tickets for zoos that they can't possibly visit. And there seems to be a wonderful movement of people doing this, not just for zoos, but, but people abroad booking hotel rooms that they'll never use. And you yourself talked about how you were paying your utility bills for a cottage that you can't possibly go back to for the moment. Yes, I mean, it, it, the, I would say that this kind of charity <laughs> became universal in Ukraine. And not only this kind of charity, but lots of other things, uh, lots of other flash mobs. For example, I mean, the army of Ukraine is crowdfunded now by Ukrainians. And uh, uh, one of the young ladies uh, from Uzhgorod, uh, she invented, I mean, well, what, what happened actually? Because she got so fed up with air raid alerts. And she thought that, well, instead of being fed up and angry, what can I do about this regular air raid alert? And, and she decided that every time she hears the alert, she will send a small sum of money to the fund for Ukrainian army. And it became a flash map. And so actually thousands and thousands of Ukrainians in different places, when they hear air raid, first of all, they don't run for the shelter. They first send money to the different charities which are helping the army, and then they go to the shelter. But, I mean, Ukrainians wouldn't be Ukrainians if somebody wouldn't oppose this. So there were immediately voices from the frontline cities where they have alert nonstop, and these people said that we don't have enough money for each alert. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they are just maybe sending once a day or once a week something for the army. But generally, I mean, this is the uh, the Ukrainian spirit today. Mm -hmm. Now, you've become the sort of voice of Ukraine for many people. People have been following your, your reporting, your stories, your newspaper writings, your, your interviews. But you also talk about in the book how you actually had to check out the journalists you were speaking to quite carefully because it was possible to spend a lot of time with someone who has, you know, 15 followers on YouTube. Well, I, I regularly have this problem, <laughs> but I, 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 I mean, I used to be very polite and uh, always ready to, <laughs> to say yes, but I, I became much more wary <laughs> because I also had some, recently, some, some kind of strange requests uh, from Asian countries, like from Iran, from Iraq, and I don't have much time to write even. Mm. But also what I noticed uh, from the very beginning that uh, on uh, on the weekends there would be no requests for interviews. So I immediately understood that actually that the journalists, they have their days off and, and the, the situation doesn't stop on Saturday and Sunday in Ukraine. So I became a bit more cynical maybe about some of the journalists who didn't want to talk to me on Saturday and Sunday when I was offering them slots. <laughs> Uh, you also talk about your sort of writing routines there. You have a dodgy, or at least had a dodgy Mac, <laughs> uh, which lost articles, and now you save it on a drive, and then you give it to your wife, and she reads through. Yeah, yes, she helps me a lot, actually. She edits uh, my English text. My English is not my mother tongue. And we discuss a lot of things, and she also she controls uh, 
my level of hate speech because sometimes if I'm very upset, suddenly she finds <laughs> the proof of it in the text and she demands me to remove it. So I'm trying to stay uh, not only sane but also reasonable and uh, not neutral but polite. And I wonder how possible that is when you look at the appalling atrocities that have been committed, how you are able day after day to write about this and be who you are, this happy, urbane, witty person sitting in a, a drawing room in London. Well, I mean, there is no other way out because, I mean, uh, I think it would be very easy to become a depressed person who is not capable of doing anything at all. And some people, uh, I mean, do get upset by the media by the reports by the photos because we have lots of photos circulating every day from new shellings etc but i mean if you want to resist if you want to stand up to this if you if you have a mission and my mission is actually to share the information and to to try to keep the word ukraine the country ukraine in the media in sort of heard so so i mean uh, i should take it somehow uh, well, without losing myself, without losing senses and without uh, shutting myself up. Because, I mean, I, I, I remember actually I was telling one story, one real story. It happened uh, with uh, to, to my friends uh, in early March or mid-March. And I started crying while I was telling the story and then I stopped. I couldn't talk anymore for several minutes. And uh, then I just decided that I should, I should, shouldn't do this. I should, I should carry on. <laughs> While people are listening, it's very important to give this information to them. What for you then has been the most important part of of getting this book out? Because of course the story isn't finished. Well, the story is going on, and I'm writing on. And I, I mean, every week I do also a very big text about what happened and what was, from my point of view, very important in the last days. But uh, I think the history is written by books like this. I uh, appreciate today nonfiction much more than I would do it half a year ago, a year ago. I mean, I can see that actually that the words have more power when they are not invented, when they are not uh, part of the uh, imaginary story. Mm. And actually, I think it's also very important because non-fiction books have a very uh, powerful political message always, social or political message. Whereas the fiction literature, I mean, it, it entertains, it can bring you to some new ideas, etc. It can show you what was happening approximately in the past. But when you read novels, I mean, you, you don't get upset or angry or active. I mean, the novels do not force you to change your opinions about things which are happening in the world. Mm. And as you say, this is going to be a vital text for history because we need to remember what it is that happened. Children also need to remember, and, and I know that you, you released the right for a children's story to be published for free and given to refugee Ukrainian children. Yes, but my children's stories are not political and I'm very happy they are not, actually. I was trying to stop writing non-political prose, <laughs> but I failed. Politics gets into my novels anyway but uh, I mean 
for children, actually, I mean, there are several issues which are very important that uh, they should not be damaged psychologically by the real events. Their imagination should not be limited because of the war. So there shouldn't be any kind of censorship. And they should be able to use their mother tongue. And this is probably the, the most important thing. They should be able to remain themselves. I mean, what is happening now in the occupied territories, from which already 7,000 kids were stolen, kidnapped by Russians, and Russia is actually organizing now some kind of re-education camps where the Ukrainians will be taught Russian traditions, Russian songs, Russian popular culture, etc. So I think uh, it's a commonplace to say that actually children are our future or their future, but I mean, to save the country, you have to save the children, and uh, to save the children, you have to let them the right to remain themselves who they are. The damage done by this, though, is going to be generational, and I think one of the most arresting passages for me in the book was, of course, we don't know when this war ends, but you were saying whenever it ends, it doesn't end with a ceasefire, it doesn't end with a peace agreement. It carries on, it carries on as long as people are being blown up by unfound ordnance, when a car drives over an unseen landmine, when children are playing and find something in the soil. It doesn't stop when the guns are put down. Well, it is true, and I learned it much before this war. I learned it in northern France when I found out that actually in the 1970s people were blown up uh, near the village of Wimi with the mines uh, that were shot in the First World War. So, I mean, every war lasts a century at least. And it takes lives of next generations in real way and in metaphorical way also. Andre, I know none of us can predict what is your best hope for what happens next? <sighs> I don't know if it is political, politically correct to say one of the leaders in this world should die and then there should be internal fight in which I hope there will be a lot of casualties before the country that attacked Ukraine decides to stop the war and to put itself, itself in order. Many thanks to Andrei Kirchhoff. Diary of an Invasion by Andrei Kirchhoff is published by Mountain Leopard Press. It's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hall and Lillian Fawcett. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, MixCloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.